0: We're here to talk with professional, usually Hollywood, creatives about their inner world, their journey, tools they've used to get to a better place in their life, what they're currently bumping up against, what their challenges are, and how they're learning to overcome them, and exploring the world of healing and where that meets Hollywood. So today I am so deeply honored and delighted to be able to speak with John Patrick Shanley. He's from the Bronx. His plays include Prodigal Son, Outside Mullinger, Tony nomination, Danny and the Deep Blue Sea, Savage in Limbo, Italian-American Reconciliation, Welcome to the Moon, Four Dogs and a Bone, Dirty Story, Defiance, Beggars in the House of Plenty, and his newest play, Brooklyn Laundry, will be premiering at Manhattan Theatre Club. His theatrical work is performed extensively across the United States and around the world. For his play, Doubt, he received both the Tony Award and the Pulitzer Prize. In the arena of screenwriting, he has 10 films to his credit, most recently Wild Mountain Time with Emily Blunt, Jamie Dornan, and Christopher Walken. His film of Doubt with Meryl Streep Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, and Viola Davis, which he also directed, was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Adapted Screenplay. Other films include Five Corners, Special Jury Prize, Barcelona Film Festival, Alive, Joe vs. the Volcano, which he also directed, and Live from Baghdad for HBO, which had an Emmy nomination. For his script of Moonstruck, he received both the Writers Guild of America Award and an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. 2009, the Writers Guild of America awarded Mr. Shanley the lifetime achievement in writing. So I couldn't be more excited to dive in and give Mr. John Patrick Shanley a Mountain Breathwork Infused with Reiki session and then ask him some questions that a few friends of mine wanted to know. So how do you feel after your breathwork session?
1: Well, I feel good. I feel lighter. And I also feel like that turned out to be a bigger journey than I expected to take. And I was uh, very grateful for it. Mm. Um, it was interesting to me the things that meant more to me than other things. Mm. Uh, for instance, when you asked me to think of my favorite color and color, it turns out is such a big thing for me. Mm. And I thought of this particular green and uh, felt like it uh, opened doors and, uh, Then I heard something in one of the lyrics about my love is away. And uh, that really moved me Hmm. because I've been very aware of the idea that love is never just gone. It goes somewhere and it's still around. And so you may not feel a direct experience of it sometimes, but it's still somewhere in your world and your universe. And then I could hear my analytical brain having comments about this or that, you know, mm-hmm. selections of music. Or, but I almost instantaneously rejected all of that as being not useful. And my favorite thing was the sounds you made. <laughs> that was, I was like, she's doing that for me yeah, uh, and for herself. But yep. I felt it was a real act of generosity and also of role modeling like you could do this too Mm -hmm. uh and it would feel good to you to do this Mm -hmm. and no doubt i will i do i am a proponent of making noises Mm -hmm. but i use it in a very particular way when i'm dealing with hostile people
2: Mm. who are not
1: overtly hostile
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: other people that I know who don't know how to deal with people who are upsetting them, but they don't know what to say to them to stop them from doing it. And I always say the same thing. Just make a noise. If you make a noise, they will understand instantly what you're saying and they will stop doing what they're doing. I've tried it too many times to think that I'm wrong. (laughs) It just works. And what's more, there's no quotes. They can't say afterwards, and he said this to me there's just nothing. It's just how I feel. It's a noise. And mm-hmm. you've got to be able to do that, right?
0: I love that.
1: But it's also, you know, you are using noise to help yourself rather than defend off hostile forces. Yeah. Like I've been using noises to fend off hostile forces. Mm-hmm. More than to let go and let in the pleasures and joys of all of the realms that surround us all the time so that's a bit of what i uh, was funny because you played at the end you played clouds and it started i thought oh yeah i've always hated this song (laughs) and then i listened to it and i thought it's a masterpiece
0: oh wow you know
1: i'm very near in my life at this time i'm very near other realms i'm very near an emotional, very emotional realm, And I go there easily. I just, if I tip a little bit this way or that, it spills into that uh, emotion. Also, I'm much more aware than I used to be, and it came up in this session, what belongs to me what doesn't belong
2: Mm. to me. Mm.
1: So, for instance, when my sort of analytical or cynical voice would come in, I'd be like, yeah, that's actually nothing. That doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. fortunately for me, that actually isn't a dominant voice in my life. Mm-hmm. But I'm always aware of it, you know, because, mm-hmm. again, as an act of defense against people who are this way, mm-hmm. I've got to sort of have that channel to deal with cynicism. Because cynicism is coming to me, and I have to sort of be able to, without really thinking about it, reflect it back where it belongs, not on me.
0: Yeah. Were you thinking, why is she choosing these songs for me?
1: my analytical mind immediately went to well whatever you what if you were a certain age at a certain in a certain era when you're at sort of your emotional height in a way and of joyfulness in a way which would be during your teenage years and pain and loneliness and love and everything is sort of magnified well I mean if I was trying to get to somebody I would play music from like when they were 14 years old Mm. or when they were 16 years old mm. because it would take them there
2: mm-hmm.
1: and indeed you know the stuff that you were playing was from sort of the woodstock era and you know very big i was 17 18 years old at that time also that music is kind of incredible mm. uh hasn't been surpassed yeah. in inter- years you know
0: i mean it's classic for me like that's my music i love
1: yeah And also, we're very limited by pop music. So, when you, it it comes with a very specific set of baggage Mm. uh, and has been overplayed. Mm -hmm. But in a way, that can be sort of like chanting in the sense of, I know this song so well, I don't have to listen to it. Yeah. On the literal level.
0: Yeah.
1: So, you know, I found myself listening to it, most of them on the literal level. That was a positive thing. So,
0: nice, nice so i'm really honored as you know to be able to get this time with you and because i knew it was a big deal i actually asked some friends what they would want to ask you one of my friends is an acting teacher his name's barry papik he said that sounds fantastic Ask him what he thinks the best player he wrote is. Danny in the deep blue sea, dreamer, examines his pillow, etc. Ask him if he still lives in New York. We know well, we know you do. And why he never moved to LA to write movies and make big money. Mm. Well, you have written movies.
1: <laughs> in other yeah. words, it's a there's an amazing number of people who, when they succeed in the film business, move to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. It's a seductive business, and it can be very exciting. I confess, I was insanely bored. I was so bored, I thought I would go out of my mind. And I was working with the most exciting people who were working at that time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if I'm this bored, when I'm with Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. Imagine what it's going to be like when I'm just in a coffee shop. Uh, it's going to be rough. But also, I'm like a, I'm an anti-car person, mm-hmm. and I really enjoy the changing of the seasons. And also, writers draw strength from where they come from. Mm. And the further move away from that, the more difficult it is to sustain a connection. Right. Uh, so it was very, you know, for me, it was a very easy decision. I And as far as, like, you know, which play is my best play, I don't, you know, first of all, that's for others to figure out if there is such a thing, you know, because it's sort of like...
0: Picking children, like, who's your favorite child?
1: Well, not only that, but, you know, it's like a menu. In other words, if you're you're in the mood for dessert, then, you know, don't order the meat and potatoes course, you know. There's a lot of different colors that I'm exploring over time. I did very much, I did have a profound experience writing and directing Beggars in the House of Plenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a very big experience for me and I think for the whole cast and for the audience. It was, a, uh, it was the most, Danny and the Sea" in Louisville, Kentucky was the most exciting moment to moment show I've ever done with John Turturro and June Stein. Mm-hmm. And Beggars in the House of Plenty just went to more places in terms of design, in terms of exploration, in terms of performances. It, it just went a whole lot of places in a very distilled period of time. So it was kind of great.
0: Is it just magic that things aligned for that experience?
1: Well, yeah, you can't chase that. Uh, you just got to keep going, you know. Mm-hmm. After I wrote Danny and the Deep Blue Sea, Everybody wanted me to write another Danny the Deep Blue Sea. Mm-hmm. That was not what I was going to do. I wrote Moonstruck, which is, a, in some ways, a very different kettle of fish. And then I wrote, you know, a, a political allegory, dirty story about Israel and the Palestinians. And that's what, you know, that's what interested me during that six-month period. I am looking for now. You know, I've written a new play called Brooklyn Laundry. That I'm going to do at Manhattan Theatre Club in February. Looking forward to doing that because I really like that play. I haven't cast it yet. I don't know much about it except Sandra Loquasto is doing the set. Same guy who did Beggars in the House of Plenty. I'm jazzed to do it.
0: That's very uh, exciting.
1: Doing uh, Roundabout is doing a, a major revival of Doubt. And it's at the rehearsals for that start on January 2nd. And the rehearsals for Brooklyn Laundry start on January 9th. Okay. So it's going to be the first week I'll be with Doubt. Then I'll move over to Brooklyn Laundry to direct that. Scott Ellis is directing the Doubt Revival. And that's going to be a lot. It'll be yeah. A- <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that's so exciting. I'm, that's fantastic that you're doing so much and that you're so involved. My favorite play of yours is The Big Funk. Oh, okay. I wanted yeah. to put that on a couple different times.
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's, uh, you know, we did that in New York at the Shakespeare Festival. I just decided to write, I said, I'm going to write a play and I'm going to put on stage everything that I'm not seeing on stage. Okay. And I'm going to put on stage everything that I'm afraid to do. Mm. And I, what am I most afraid to do? And I go, male nudity. That would be the number one thing that I simply don't want to deal with. All right, It's like, okay, you're going to do it and it's going to be extended and you're going to light the audience while you do it. So there's no place to hide. <laughs> and it was, it was crazy. It was kind of great.
0: That's amazing. Okay. So I want to ask you for director Michael Pressman. He says, mm-hmm. that's a real coup. He's very open and willing to talk. I love his Instagram account. Okay. Doubt is one of my favorite plays. I would be curious to hear his different feelings about film and theater. Are you familiar with Moonstruck? He's asking me. Of course I am. Great movie. Very early success. Discuss that. So he wants to know about Moonstruck.
1: Well, I mean- Moonstruck was, you know, I just, I, I decided I was painting people's apartments and then I got a national endowment for the arts grant for like $17,000. And I knew the way that I lived, that I could live on that for a year. hmm I thought, if I don't do something during this year to change my situation, I'm going to be back painting people's apartments next year. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to write a movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wrote Five Corners. And I was writing it. And I was almost finished. And this guy, Tony Bill, uh, had seen uh, a scene from Danny in the Deep Blue Sea in an acting class in L.A. And he reached out to me and said, you want to have a drink? Are you working on anything? And I said, sure. And uh, I said, actually, I'm writing a screenplay. I'm going to be finished in about a week. So he has to read it. I gave it to him. Unbeknownst to me, he then turned around and gave it to George Harrison, the Beatle, who had started Handmade Films. And Harrison said, I want to make it. And Tony Bill was in shock. He called me up. He said, it never happens like this. Don't Mm -hmm. get used to it. It, That just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay. And uh, then I sat down and I wrote Moonstruck. And uh, my agent had a relationship with Norman Jewison because she had done Agnes of God with him. Oh. She re- represented John Peelmeyer. And I said, you know, I think that Norman Jewison might like this. And also send it to Larry Kasdan because I knew Larry Kasdan. Wow. And so she did. and. Norman, Norman's partner called and yelled at her for sending such an obviously uncinematic script, wasting his time that he had to read this. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, Norman called and said, "I want to option this." Mm-hmm. He had just read it, mm-hmm. um, and then we so we negotiated that deal over the course of like the next week. And then Larry Kasdan called and said, I want to option this. And my agent said, I'm sorry, you're too late. Norman Jewison just stopped. So he called Norman Jewison mm-hmm. and said, I wonder if you'd be willing to step aside and let me direct this. And wow. Larry Larry was incredibly hot at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and had done the big chill and all sorts of stuff. So uh, I life,
0: love that movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. He did me a great favor because... From that moment, there was no way Norman was letting go of that script. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, it got made. And Five Corners wrapped shooting. And one week later, Moonstruck started shooting. And this has sort of been the way my career has gone. It's like when it goes, it goes. Mm -hmm. And when nothing's happening, Mm -hmm. nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. So this period during which a lot was happening, I went to Toronto and me and Norman, acted out all the parts. We divvied, divvied them up 50-50. So he ended up playing love scenes together. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was kind of great. And he really, it was a really smart thing to do because he could get the whole tone of the movie from acting it with me. Mm-hmm. And he did. And he asked me who I thought should be in it. And I named a couple of theater people because that's really all I knew. And he said, well, what about Cher? And I said, do you think you could get her? <laughs> She was at that time at the zenith of her fame. And he called me back and he said, I got Cher. Wow. And Cher wanted Nick Cage.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he screen tested because mm-hmm. he's in his early 20s. And he was sensational. And then they cast Howard fuel was the casting director. And they did a great job casting the film. It went off relatively seamlessly. There's one crazy actress in the cast, Julie Bavasso, who tried to get in a big fight with Nick Cage. Uh, <laughs> And they seem to be pulled apart. But other than that, there were, you know, it just went really well. Everybody was in the groove. And once in a blue moon, if you're very fortunate, that's the way things happen.
0: Well you seem to have good karma with all of this. So here's the next question. Thank you. So actor producer David Moscow, you know, he, he was the kid in big newsies and he produces now and so he says that is awesome. He is an icon. What was it like growing up in the Bronx. Why do so many creatives come from there? The Marshalls, Carl Reiner, J. Lo, Lauren Bacall, et cetera.
1: Well, I mean, it is true. It's something I've always noticed. The Bronx is some kind of fountainhead. Stanley Cooper is from the Bronx. Okay. Uh, I think that it's the only part of New York that's part of the mainland United States. The rest is separated by water. So I remember when I did auditions for subsidiary roles in Five Corners, they brought in all kinds of neighborhood people. And I quickly discovered that there was a quality that people had from the Bronx that was different from the other boroughs. So like somebody would come in from Brooklyn mm-hmm. and they would read the part and they do something that made you laugh and they noticed that and they would do that more. Mm-hmm. And then somebody would come in from queens and they would do it and if you liked it they'd like tried to borrow money from you and then people from the Bronx would come in and they would do something and you would laugh and they would look at you and go like what are you laughing about
2: right
1: (laughs) it was just they were very very grounded Mm -hmm. and they were not doing it for you they were not playing for you they were who they were and truth to be told in my neighborhood that was very much the case people were grounded you might like them, you might not, but by God, they were grounded, except for me. I was the asshole.
0: <laughs> okay. So there's an authenticity that yeah. that area offered. that It bred that authenticity.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. So the next question he was asking is, why did you join the military?
1: Well, it was during the latter portion of the Vietnam War. And I was 1A. I was going to be drafted. Mm -hmm. And I asked around. I said, what's the Army like? And they said, really boring. And that scared me. And then I asked about the Marine Corps, who had it. They had a two-year program open because they were running out of people. And I said, "Is, is the Marine Corps boring? And the guys who've been in the Marine Corps that I asked sort of laughed I went, no, it's not boring. I said, okay, I'm going in the Marine Corps. And my brother Tom had been in the Marine Corps. My brother Jim had been in the Navy. And I knew that it was completely incongruous that I would go in the Marine Corps. You know, I had no business being in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And that, I have a very perverse sense of humor. And so basically my entire time in basic training was spent trying not to laugh at the things the drill instructors were saying and doing. And it was very stimulating. I was never born, never Mm -hmm. born. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turned out to be, I didn't have to go to Vietnam. I had made up my mind that if they ordered me to go to Vietnam, I would refuse and go to jail. Mm -hmm. But then the amount of time you needed to have left to go there Past and it began to bother me. I'm like, maybe you were lying to yourself. Maybe if they'd given you orders, you would have gone. And now you'll never know. And about that time, they ordered me to go to driving school. I went up to headquarters and said, I have a conscientious objection to driving. They're killers, they're polluters, and I won't drive one of them. Mm-hmm. And the guy was flabbergasted, a colonel, and long pause, And he said, well, you have some heavy reasons there, Marine, but I don't know what the fuck you're doing in the Marine Corps. (laughs) And he gave me a conscientious objection. And by the time I got back to my barracks, which was only 300 yards away, everyone in my barracks knew someone had gotten a conscientious objection to driving school, and everyone had figured out it had to be me. <laughs> but it paid for my college education afterwards.
0: Okay. And this is what I just wanted to ask you too, but he, he was saying, did it teach you anything that you use in your writing?
1: Absolutely. Discipline. I mean, I got up every morning at 5 o'clock. I rode for three hours after the Marine Corps. Okay. Then I'd run for three miles, and then I would start my day. Wow. So, yeah, big time. Discipline. Structure
0: hmm That's a big part of your success, you feel like, is that structure oh, yeah. and discipline. Absolutely. Got it. He said he has a unique mix of playful and serious, exploring the quirky joy of humanity and the fatal flaws. How does he tap into that in himself?
1: Well, I was born an asshole, and I have- Why
0: do you say that?
1: Oh, because I'm right, because I'm right. From my earliest memories, I'm doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing. Okay. You know, whether it's my mother, who's you know got five children, and if the door is open one crack, I grab it and I'm out and I'm running down the block, and she's running after me in her bathrobe. And the reason why did I run out that door? For fun, right? Because I thought it was playful. You know, I then I you know when I was about two, I tried to burn down the house to see what 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 would happen. Uh, and she just happened to see me put a flaming piece of paper under the toy chest and grab it and put it out. And it pretty much went on from there until not long enough ago. And every day when I'm in the shower, I remember yet another thing that I did and wince. Every day. Something new. I'm like, and I
0: It's like you're a great experimenter. You want to see what happens.
1: You call that side of my personality the mad scientist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We start with the same thought. What would happen if... Mm -hmm. And then whatever it was, I would probably do it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: That's part, you know, when I I read the other day in the paper, I started laughing because there was a guy, his job was to be a liaison with people who lost their children in battle Mm -hmm. and they got some insurance money because of that, from the government. Mm-hmm. And this guy was stealing all their money. And I laughed because I'm like, oh my God, that's us. That's us. That's the human race. Never think for one moment. Now, I didn't do that particular thing. But never think for one moment that you're exempt from that kind of behavior. Mm. It happens too often. It is mm-hmm. an aspect of the human condition. We contain these awful elements. Yes. Uh, in fact, when you were doing your guided meditation with me, you talked about accepting all of that. And I was smiling because I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm working.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But you think if you like read that, go like, what kind of person would do? You are not in touch with yourself. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what kind of person would do that. Mm-hmm. I would do that. Mm -hmm. except circumstances have protected me from doing that Mm -hmm. and maybe god likes me
0: i agree and i understand with what you're saying i do think there's not in anyone who's inherently good or inherently bad i think we all have the capacity for both Mm -hmm. um and so david said he seems like he is very accepting of people that he likes them joe versus the volcano moonstruck even hoffman in doubt did he contemplate directing Doubt, the play? Why did he not but directed the movie?
1: I didn't direct the play because I was doing three productions simultaneously. Okay. Doing a revival of Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. I was doing a new play called Sailor Song, and I was doing Doubt. And I was shuttling amongst all those rehearsals. Mm-hmm. And that it's it's actually reminiscent of what's coming up on my calendar this year.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it has
1: been, hasn't been the case for a good while.
0: So what is the difference between writing a play and then turning it into a film? Was one more fully realized than the other?
1: Well, when you order to write a play, you hypnotize yourself into finding a way of keeping almost the whole world out and having just these key characters in and telling your story through the use of those characters Mm -hmm. And then when you're going to adapt it into a film, uh, it can be very difficult for a playwright to turn that into a screenplay because you have to wake yourself up from the crazy thing you did, which was to uh, get rid of the whole world except for these four people. And you have to bring that whole world back, invite it in to populate in a more natural fashion, the story. Mm -hmm. It can take time to do it. It's a very difficult thing. So many plays do not work as films because they, the writer cannot find a way to undo the crazy thing they did in the first place. Because it is strange. In other words, mm-hmm. that's not the way life is, that there's only three people all day long or four people or five people. There's all these other people. Yeah. And repopulated, but in a meaningless way, where you put like another 10 people behind them, but they're not really doing anything. Mm -hmm. To go beyond that to, you know, so I spent a lot of time thinking about the nuns, the way they lived uh, in their in their cloistered life, and the way the priests lived, and then the nuns when they taught, and then the priests when they did like physical education, Mm -hmm. and and started to just realize, oh yeah, there's a whole world here. Mm -hmm.
0: And in the movie, I want to skip down to my last question. Meryl Streep. What was that like directing her?
1: Uh, well, you know, Meryl's obviously incredibly gifted. Mildly skeptical, but we got on very well. I mean, what ended up happening was I think a thing that good actors guard against is directorial intrusion or anybody else intrusion that they're in a private place where they're powerfully imagining something,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you. You can't distract them overly from that. Now, occasionally something comes up, and you have to deal with it as a director. But uh, it's really sort of an act of mutual meditation. So like every morning, Meryl and uh, Amy, dressed all in black head to toe, and I would be sitting in these director's chairs, and I would be reading the New York Times and they would be doing whatever they were doing. I was reading the paper, and Amy was sort of just sitting there. And then after a couple of days, Amy decided to learn knitting, and now Meryl and Amy were knitting, dressed all in black, and I'm reading the paper. And like half-hour stretches would go by when nobody said anything. And I knew that that was part of all of our preparation, Uh, and I also knew that it was comical i was like if one more nun shows up knitting i know i'm gonna die (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's great all right so um an actor friend of mine neil jackson he said oh cool I think Joe versus the volcano is an underappreciated masterpiece. And my husband said, and I agreed about that. And to go from that to writing alive and doubt three exclamation points, I guess selfishly, I'd like to know if given how diverse the tones and styles of his movies are, he believes he has any universal themes to his writing.
1: Well, you know, when I, When I wrote Joe, I wrote what I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, I wanted to convey something of my experience of life, which had a number of things going on. One of them was that I was a guy from the Bronx. And when I was 18, I had a job working for a company that made terrifying medical instruments and artificial testicles. (laughs) And there were artificial (laughs) testicles in my desk drawer when I came in in the morning. And I was the advertising librarian for... These various devices, mm-hmm. gastroenter all sorts of things. That place, I'm like, this place, you know, I felt like sort of like I got cut off from my whole life and I was in some kind of weird German expressionist movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I thought I'm, you know, going to start it there. And then after I wrote a couple of movies, I wrote the, my first movie, Five Corners. I ended up going to Los Angeles to see Tony Bill and spend time with him. And it turned out the guy had a yacht called the Olinka. And the morning after I arrived, he said, you know, if you're up for it, we uh, could take my yacht together with my chef to Catalina for fresh abalone and spend the night and come back. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, great. So we get on the yacht and we're out on the Pacific Ocean, which I have never seen before. We're cutting through the blue. And I suddenly realized that for the first time in certainly over 10 years, I'm in direct sunlight. I have not. I have, When I walked in New York, I would walk in the shadow on the edge of the building to avoid direct sunlight mm-hmm. for 10 years. Because mm-hmm. I found when I went into the sunlight, I got dizzy. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that. And when I got there, suddenly I was like, my whole life just changed. I've got to get used to stuff that is probably other people seem to like. And I'm just like, this is a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Uh, But gradually I was able to enjoy some of those things and participate in this adventure. So when I did Joe versus the Volcano, I got an enormous, beautiful yacht called the Spike Africa. I shot a central piece of the movie on that yacht, cutting through the Pacific with this guy who had been in that job that I'd been in. And, you know, so there's always antecedents for the things you do. Mm
0: -hmm. And working with Meg and Tom, what was that like?
1: Fabulous. Fabulous. You know, like two of the nicest people in show business and Kathy Kennedy, Frank Marshall, and Steven Spielberg, three more of the nicest people in show Mm. business. So I was surrounded by just good energy. And I was going to need it because Warner Brothers was going went crazy when they saw what I was doing.
0: It was, so we went
1: to war. we for the whole shoot.
0: Why would they go crazy to seeing what you were doing?
1: Because the, the, if you go back and look at Warner Brothers movies from that time, they were doing the kind of you know Chevy Chase comedies. Okay. And somehow, even though they'd read the script, and what's more, I brought them over and sh- showed them every storyboard and everything. I was going when I started shooting, they were like, "What is this?" And they thought they were getting just a you know slip on a, a banana peel comedy
2: mm-hmm.
1: with Tom Hanks. And I was doing this whole other thing. And so they were constantly trying to get a grip on the movie. And they couldn't They because I kept offering to leave. Every time they would, you know, say, we don't want this. We're not going to do that. I'd be like, it's okay. I'm going to get a cab and I'm going to go to the airport. I'm going to go home. (laughs) And they would back off. The whole movie made that way.
0: That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) All right. Okay. So Amy Ferris, who's an author, she says, what would I ask John Patrick Shanley? Actually, I would love to thank him for writing, creating flawed, messy, extraordinary, powerful women. So that's just a thank you. And I agree. And then this is a a question I also have is what I ask people that I interview on this podcast is what are the tools spiritually that have helped you throughout the arc of your career or just as a human?
1: uh, Many things, everything. I've spent a lot of time interpreting my dreams all my life. That's been a real source of guidance to me Mm -hmm. about what I actually think and what I actually feel and what actually is interesting to me. And then I've just worked very hard to stay in the game because there's something in the natural autonomic nervous system of show business that if you stand still, they will, it will start to drive you out. You have to keep going. You have to keep going forward. Painting, you know, thinking about why Picasso was painting, what he was painting in different eras has been very helpful to me. Because mm-hmm. I had a, an epiphany about that a very simple one, really, I suppose. And yet I would never thought of it, which was, oh, he's always painting things that are on their way to being other things. He's not painting just this is it. Mm-hmm. It's a dynamism. It's a, a photograph of motion and of a very profound kind of motion. Like I am me right now while I'm talking to you, but I am already on my way to becoming something else. Uh, You know, whether that's a tree or another person or that's happening while I'm talking. It's happening all the time and it's happening to everyone else, too. And that kind of universal transmogrification, that is what Einstein was talking about. And it's very difficult if you try to, with your right brain, grab it and nail it down because it doesn't want to do that. It wants you to let it go and be what it is. So pay attention to your incidental impulses, your flighty thoughts. When I write somebody talking and I accidentally write the wrong word, I'm very slow to take it out. I'm like, let me see what it is if that stays in, because that just popped out of somewhere. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I'm always working on it. I'm always, because it's the great pleasure of my life that I have some place to go in my imagination that provides me comfort. And if I didn't have it, there would be no escape from this mortal life, which is very difficult.
0: Yeah. Do you meditate? Do you do yoga? What kind of spiritual practices have you done?
1: I don't do yoga. I've never done yoga. I meditate when I get in trouble Okay. usually long after I should have started. And also what I do as a writer is very much a meditation. I start to notice the things that I'm writing. I just recently wrote a one-act play and I read it yesterday for the first time since I wrote it. And I was just amazed by it. I'm like, what? I'm like, whoa, okay. And I was like, I was excited by it. And I certainly didn't experience it like I was just reading something I wrote. I experienced it like, this thing came in through the chute, mm-hmm. uh, and it is, you know, you can't apply words like good or bad to it. But I, what I would say is alive, really alive. Okay. You know, the great seeking is if I can find something else, some new, some new thing that when I start writing, it grabs me and preoccupies me for the next year or two years or five years. I'd be so happy if that happened. Right now I'm sort of like wondering what that might be.
0: I feel like you're a channel, right? Like from what you're saying, you channel these things. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is, and maybe you already answered it, is there something that makes you a good channel?
1: What I recognize, actually the thing that makes me go to the channel is like, typing. Okay. You know, in other words, if I start writing something,
2: mm-hmm. then
1: something starts to happen. If I sit around and wait, which I am right now, mm-hmm. if I sit around and wait for lightning to strike, mm-hmm. it, that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is you start writing, you write. I like, and what I did for a while and with with real success, and which I should probably do again, is I wrote a series of one act plays. Mm -hmm. And then I did a stage reading of those one act plays. And then when I did the stage reading, I noticed I'm like, oh, this one is different than all the others. This one is a full length play. And then I would be able to, like, I did that with Outside Mullingar, which went from being a 15 minute play. To a play on Broadway, to a feature film, mm-hmm. uh, and that started with me doing a 15 minute play. Uh, and the play that I'm doing, uh, Brooklyn Military, started with me writing one scene with two sisters talking. And I did it uh, just one reading of it, and I went, "Wow, there is power in this. This is a full length play." And I put it aside, and then didn't work on it for 10 years. And mm-hmm. then I came back to it, and then the whole play was. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah, great. So your advice to creatives, I guess maybe specifically writers, since that's what we're talking about right now, what would that be?
1: Well, the thing is always, well, first of all, are you always a writer? Are you sometimes just a human being? Are you an artist? And sometimes you write. Mm -hmm. There's so many different genres of person. Mm -hmm. And you got to figure out what you are. I'm a writer. I was born a writer. Mm -hmm. And now I've entered a time in my life where I, Whereas before I was writing and I was like desperate to finish whatever I was writing. And that provided the propulsion because I could not wait. I'd be five pages in. And I'm like, my God, when is this going to be over? And I write the whole play just to write the end.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And now after I have the first draft and I'm like, okay, I have something. I'm delighted that I can take my time and work on it for a significant period of time. It took me quite a while to bring Brooklyn Laundry to the place that it ultimately ended up. And I'm very happy with where it ended up.
0: Thank you. And anything else, because I'm aware of being respectful of your time, we can close up like anything else that, because this is called the authentic creative. So it's like a being the truthful, creative artist. Is there anything else you would want to share with anyone listening?
1: I think that it can be incredibly exciting to be vulnerable Mm. and to be humble Mm. and to talk to people in a meaningful way when you have exchanges with people because this is your life. And if you talk to people in a meaningful way, your life moves. Mm -hmm. And if you fend them off by saying things that don't mean anything, which I do a lot, your life is not moving. So it's those times when you allow yourself to be uncertain and humble and communicate with your physical world, with your artistic world, with the things that you're reading, with the people that you're talking to, that's when you get the nourishment you need in order to create, in order to express, really.
0: I love that so much. Thank you. Mm. That's Mm. beautiful. That's so beautiful. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your heart and your honesty and your vulnerability. I really appreciate you.
1: Well, Well, lovely to speak with you, Siri and uh i hope uh, i hope uh, the next thing that you do is has a lot of fun
0: <laughs> yeah thank you i hope so too okay. all right all right
1: you be well you
0: be well you too bye bye If you are a director, an actor, a producer who's wanting to have this kind of somatic support, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual support on set, on the set of your film or your TV show or your commercial, this is something that we're offering. Me as Reiki master of 26 years, Akashic Record Reading Spiritual Guidance practitioner, as well as Mountain Breathwork Facilitator and Breathwork Facilitator, artist Falk Henschel, who also does intuitive adjustments, can come to you guys as a team and offer support so that your creatives, the director, anyone that's on set, the actors especially, feel really safe in their nervous system feel really supported especially during those times of high stress where things are needing to be done really quickly and effectively that they have what they're needing so that they can give you the result that you're really wanting and everyone wins so this is the authentic creative somatic support system and you can get in touch siri at sageandblushwellness.com if you have any questions or you're interested in having this kind of support Oftentimes what gets overlooked is how much pressure the director is under and how nervous the director may be. It feels like it's all riding on them. We had this director that was at our house in Chatsworth. We were hosting a filming and ended up holding her hair as she threw up into the toilet. I got her calmed down, I helped her to ground and run her energy. And this was so vital in her being able to have the productive, effective, magical day that she ended up having. And then she was able to set the tone for the entire day. And the entire crew and the entire cast and get exactly what everyone wanted. I wanted to share with you guys an opportunity that I'm creating. If you're wanting to drop the mask and open to your deepest authenticity and let go of needing to be liked or get the most followers, the authentic creative retreat is an opportunity to get out of the current dynamics you're living in and living out. And open and align to what you're truly wanting without strategy, but by opening the heart space. This is an opportunity to come home to your most aligned, most authentic. Life. It's at Desert Sage House in Yucca Valley, California. It's all day September 27th and September 28th. There are only four spots. So, Sage and Blush Wellness invites you to this intimate retreat for professional creatives ready for a breakthrough and transformative deep shift in their happiness, life, and career. We will be facilitating breathwork, traditional usui reiki, intuitive adjustments. There will be cold plunge and hot tub. And this is with artist, breathwork facilitator, Falk Kenschel, who has been an incredibly healing presence in me and my husband Jake's lives. We've been working with him for a while and it's been absolutely life-changing. And then I'll be there. Reiki master of masters for 26 years, been practicing Reiki, Akashic teacher, mountain breathwork teacher, as you know that I am. And I can't wait. This is going to be such an opportunity for beautiful intimacy, for beautiful opportunity to fully drop in, fully align with what your heart is really wanting and to make those small and also big shifts in your life so that you can align with exactly what you're wanting and needing, whatever that looks like for you, so that you can be and live your most authentic, most creative life. So please reach out, siri at sageandblushwellness.com if you have any questions about the retreat and I very much look forward to speaking with you and connecting with you feel free to reach out. Seriously, I want to hear from you. Also, if you have ideas about who I should interview, maybe it's you, maybe it's a friend you know, someone that's a mentor, someone you think is really interesting and that's voice needs to be heard. If you're looking for support or know someone who's looking for support in any of the various ways that Sage and Blush Wellness offers support, please feel free to share through text, through social media. Sage and Blush Wellness offers so many different ways of support. Check it out. I look forward to hearing from you. Have a beautiful rest of your day and remember you are enough right here just as you are.